Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. As we continue our series in the book of 1 Timothy, today we're going to begin chapter 2. And in chapter 1 thus far, we've seen the call of Paul and this charge to this young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy, this charge to uh, root out these false teachers, among whom are these two named at the end in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of their faith and who are in danger of making shipwreck of other people's faith within that congregation. And so you see Timothy being charged by Paul to get the false teachers out, get the false teaching out, and it's confrontational as that may sound, Paul says the aim of this charge is love. Love for the people who are being misled and love for the false teachers that they might come to repentance. And then last week we looked at the great mercy and grace that God has poured out on the chief sinner, as he calls himself, Paul. And as he reminds us that that grace is available to us. And now today we're going to begin to see that grace and that mercy overflowed not just in the heart of the apostle and not just for Timothy or for the Ephesian believers, but for all the lost to whom Timothy has been sent to preach the gospel, to whom Paul has been sent to preach the gospel. And so we begin with this question today. What is the mission of God? What is the mission of God? We can see part of that in chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Christ come? To save sinners. This is and must be the mission of God. And he does so by his sinless life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good that Jesus did that. Of course, that's the center of it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But how does that good news come to the ear of a sinner? How does that good news come to the heart of the lost? How will the lost hear and so place faith in Jesus to be saved? We know that's the way it works, right? They must call on him, but they can't call if they haven't heard And how are they to hear unless they have a preacher? Paul says that in Romans 10, 14. How can they hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming? Not necessarily what I'm doing here today, though this is part of that. But what we do every day as we proclaim the good news of the gospel to the lost. And so it falls to us to take the news about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has already completed for us and to proclaim it then to sinners so that God's mission in saving sinners through Christ becomes our mission that we then carry out by telling people how to be saved. Paul wants Timothy and he wants us to understand that this is God's mission. 
Paul lets us know very quickly this is his mission. This must be Timothy's mission, and it must be also our mission this morning. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, you can tell this is, this is the, the beginning of the main body of Paul's letter here after that introduction. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Number one today here, we see the call. In those first two verses, we see this call to prayer. For those of you that enjoy cooking or being in the kitchen, uh, just from the beginning of our marriage, this is the way our marriage has been. Jessica said, I hate to cook. I said, I love to cook. She loves to clean. I love to cook, so I cook. She cleans. That's the way we've, uh, we've arranged ourselves in our marriage, and it works because I love to cook. It's, it's a stress reliever for me. It's an outlet to, to just chill and not think about anything except the food and what I'm doing. And those of you who love to cook, those that love to be in the kitchen, you may or may not be familiar with this term. But when you begin to prep for the meal, you do what's called mise en place. It's French for putting things in place, putting things together. So you don't begin to cook uh, something and then you start chopping your vegetables or then you start measuring out your spices or, or cutting your meat. You get all of that together beforehand. You get everything in place beforehand, or you should. You should be doing that. And then you begin, and then you begin to prepare the meal. Mise en place, getting your stuff in place, in order, first things first. And I think Paul would point us to a little churchy mise en place this morning as we think about the mission that God has called us to. Before we're going to be able to do what God has called us to do, what should we do first? What should we have in place first? And Paul points to perhaps the most overlooked, the most underutilized weapon in the Christian arsenal, and that is prayer. In verse 1, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I mean, you know this from being a child, right? In short, prayer is just simply speaking to God. It's communication with God. But there's another asset, another facet to this also, that it's not just speaking to God and communicating to him, But it is listening for his leading, getting on the same page, submitting to the Spirit's leadership and the will of God in your life by the Word of God. And Paul uses four different words for prayer here. We're not going to spend too much time here because that's not really the point of why he does this. But he does say supplications. Supplications, that is requests. What we probably most often go to when we pray to God, asking for something supplication, asking for something on behalf of someone else, asking for stuff, for healing, for leadership, for guidance, for wisdom, whatever it is. Supplication is asking something from God. He then uses the generic word for prayers, simply speaking to God, 
communicating with God. And there should be an indication here that there can be a difference. There can be communication with God and talking to God without necessarily asking anything from God. Uh, Every time you talk to your spouse or to your children or to a close friend, you're not necessarily always asking for something, are you? You're not always making supplications. So why is that the case with God? When is the last time you spent some time just simply in praise to God or in thanksgiving to God or simply uh, if you needed to vent or say something and you're anxious and you're stressful, you're angry, you're sad, whatever it is. When's the last time you said, as we sang today, taking it to the Lord? When's the last time you told it to Jesus? He is a friend, and that's well known, so take it to Jesus. Another word he uses is intercessions, praying on behalf of someone else. And sure, this might be a little overlap with supplication, but this is going to God on behalf of someone else's need. Not merely praying for your own needs or your own family or your own supplications, but taking someone else's need to the Lord. As Jesus intercedes for us, we intercede for others. And then there's thanksgivings, words of praise to God, gratitude to God for all that he has done, asking him for whatever we might want to ask him. We're allowed to do that, speaking to him and communicating with him, praying on behalf of others, but also being grateful and thanking him for how he has worked thus far. Now, Paul does not intend for this to be an exhaustive list of types of prayers. We don't need a whole series on the types of prayers based on these four words. Paul's main point here is, however you need to communicate to God, and whatever you need to say to God, and whatever way you need to say it, whether it's a supplication or a simple prayer or an intercession or a thanksgiving, or we could go further to confession and praise and adoration as we know the Acts model. Whatever it is and however it is you need to say it to God, Paul's point is you need to be a praying people. Believers should be praying people. We see that at the very beginning of this verse, don't we? First of all. First of all. Before we go any further with what needs to be done in the Christian life or the church in Ephesus or First Baptist Church Dumas, first of all, you need to pray. Start there. The question for many of us this morning is, is that often where we start? Is prayer often where you start? Or is it the last resort? Is it do all you can do and when all else fails, Pray. When you've got your mise en place backwards, you should have prayed beforehand and then begin to do all that you can do by God's power. Where do we often start? Do you even never get to prayer at all? Is it even the last resort? Is it an option on the table at all? Think of how often even the Lord Jesus needed to get aside and pray. Might be a fun Bible study for someone to do, just to go track through the Gospels. Just pick one Gospel and see how many times Jesus needed to get away by himself alone in order to commune with the Father, to talk with the Father, to hear the Father's plan, to seek the Father's will, and to think that Jesus would need prayer as a weapon in his earthly ministry, the Son of God himself. How much more so do you need prayer? How much more so do I need prayer? And yet it's often the last place we go after trying everything else. 
I wonder how much time and energy you waste on doing the wrong thing the wrong way and you forget to pray. I think often of how many times churches do the wrong things the wrong way and they forget to start at the starting point and to pray. Before so many churches cast their supposed visions for growth and their supposed visions for the year and ministry and what we're going to do and what we're going to build and what our activities are going to be and what we're doing next and what our calendar looks like. How many times do churches and pastors and ministries and staffs, denominations just stop to pray and to get in line with what God is saying, where God is leading, what God would have for his churches and for his people? Maybe we should take a simple cue from the Bible and start where Jesus started. Start where the Apostle Paul starts. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And you say, so far, Pastor Matt, this is great. Prayer is good. Even if we got our toes a little stepped on because we don't pray as often as we should or we don't start there, this is great. I love prayer. I love talking to God. Let's just make it a little harder now in verse 1. Pray for all people not just your church not just your family not just your friends pray for all people we say okay but I mean really what to what extent (laughs) where does it end Where, where can I stop praying for someone Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your friends and you shall love your loved ones and you shall hate your enemies. Love those who love you and hate those who hate you. That seems simple enough, right? Everybody gets what's coming to them. Jesus says in verse 44, no, that's not the way it should be. In fact, you should bless those who persecute you and you should pray for your enemies. From the most loved to the most unloved person in your mind, today and everywhere in between your church family your actual family your friends people you like how about your enemies how about those who are disliked how about those who quite honestly get on your nerves how about those who drive you crazy how about those who wish to do you harm Do you want a healthy church with healthy church members? I mean, every person in the church is a yes, we want a healthy church. We want to be healthy church members. Well, as hard as it is, we must start here and pray for everybody. Now, I want you this morning to lay aside even what this means for you, and I want you to think about what it meant for them then. This church in Ephesus, this young pastor in the first century. What did this mean for them to pray for everybody? The Jewish religious leaders who persecuted them. The Romans who persecuted them. The Roman rulers and authorities who persecuted them. Yes, that's included in this all people. And Paul goes on in verse 2. For kings... And all who are in high positions. For kings and all who are in high positions. Pray for everyone. The liked, the unliked, the loved, the unloved. Your friends, your enemies. 
those who love you, those who want to kill you. Pray for all of them, even the rulers, all those in high positions of authority. This means the ones you like, the ones who vote like you, the ones who represent you, the ones who speak for you. Oh yeah, pray for them. Pray for them every day that God would give them strength. That if those convictions are your convictions and you believe those convictions are biblical, pray for them to be strengthened, to be emboldened by the Spirit of God to stand for those things in the public square, in Congress, in our state government. But what about the ones you dislike? What about the ones that if they met you today, they would hate you? What about the ones who, because you love the overturning of Roe v. Wade, would hate you and would despise you and would insult you? What about those who would speak against you? Think about these people in the first century who aren't just dealing with political turmoil. They're dealing with threats to their very lives. Think about those who would persecute you. And the question is, should we pray for them too? Yes, we should pray for them too. I can't tell you how many times during the Trump administration as a youth pastor and then a pastor, I would hear, oh, we need to pray for the president. Oh, we need to pray for the president. We really need to pray that he has this and this strength and this boldness and this thing. I said, yeah, of course we need to pray for the president. I don't personally remember having any of those requests come to me as a youth pastor or a staff member before that about President Obama. When's the last time you thought, man, I really need to pray for President Biden? When's the last time a news story came across the screen? And I'm guilty of this too. Uh, a headline came across or there was a snippet from a press report or something and you just scoffed and rolled your eyes and moved on without stopping to ask God for whatever it is and whoever it is, God, change their mind, open their heart. Whoever is next, will you pray for them? Governor Abbott, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, you prayed for them? How about these names? Chuck Schumer, AOC, Nancy Pelosi. You think about what a tough pill this was to swallow in the first century. To pray for people who were literally trying to kill them. It's not so hard for us to obey this, is it? It was hard for them. It's not so much for us. But maybe it's even closer to home for you today. It's not just a hated politician. It's easy to say, you know, pray for those people. The people on the, the talking heads on the TV or the radio. You know, pray for them. Bless them. What about your neighbor? What about your coworker? What about your boss? Now, we can have all kinds of prayer days for the president, for Congress, for the Supreme Court. When's the last time you prayed for the illegal immigrant? Think about the 50 precious souls made in the image of God that died tragically in a truck in sweltering heat this past week. 
because our nation refuses to take action on the border. Think about those precious souls, their families. When's the last time you prayed for them? When's the last time you prayed for the terrorist? What about your spouse? Your child? What about those of you in the room today who know an abuser? When's the last time you prayed for them? And there are times for prayers of indignation. The Psalms are full of prayers of indignation if you just want to go find one. Paul doesn't point us there, though, today. He says intercessions and thanksgivings. Do our prayers or a lack of prayer reveal what we really want for the lost? Does it reveal what we really want for the lost? And does that match up with what God wants for the lost? Do our prayers or lack of prayers reveal our heart for the lost or a lack of compassion for the lost? And Paul pulls no punches here. Pray for all people, even those in authority. To what end and to what purpose? Paul says here in verse 2, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And you say, okay, I can get on board with that. I'll pray all day if it means I'll be left alone. And I'll have peace and quiet and I can live my life and you can live your life. That is not what Paul is pointing us here. That's not what he means when he says that we may lead peaceful, quiet lives. Why do we want peace? Why do we want religious freedom? Why do we want religious liberty? So that we can simply live in ease and comfort? No, so that the gospel may be unbound and may be freely and openly preached by believers to all who will listen. This is not freedom as much as we're thankful for it and liberty as much as we're thankful for it and peace just for me. This is peace for the sake of the gospel. This is freedom and liberty for the sake of the gospel that Christ might be proclaimed and that the gospel might increase. That's why Paul wants us to pray. Pray for everyone. Pray for leaders so that we may be at peace and there might be freedom to preach the gospel to the lost because they desperately need it. The question for you this morning is, do you want to live a godly life that pleases God? Do you want to be dedicated to Jesus and his gospel, to live for his mission? Paul says you got to start here. You must pray. Not for selfish ease or relief, but so the gospel might increase. Not just for your family and friends and those you like, but also for your enemies, even those in high places. You need to pray expecting God to save. Let me ask you a question this morning, Christians. Can God save? Can God save? Will he save? And why not pray for him to do that? The call Paul gives us is the call to prayer. Number two is the cause, verses three through six. This is why we pray. 
Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is why we pray. This drives our prayer. Because God desires all people to be saved. This is why we pray for our family, our friends, and our loved ones. It's also why we pray for our enemies and our persecutors and our lost friends and loved ones and around the world. Why? Because no one, we believe this, don't we? No one is beyond God's saving power. No one is beyond God's saving power. No abusive parent, no addicted sibling, no wayward child, No political enemy is beyond God's power to save. And when you begin to pray for them, you should keep in mind what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. After listing all these sins and all these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, in verse 11 he reminds us very quickly, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, but such were some of you. You were washed You were sanctified. So as your patience begins to wear thin with that lost person in your life, and your compassion begins to wane for that lost person in your workplace, remember what God did for you. Such were some of you. And then remember that if he did it for you, he can do it for anybody. No sinner No atheist, no blasphemer, no drunk, no addict, no persecutor, murderer, no thief, no liar, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, skinny, fat, tall, and short. No one is outside of God's power to save. And again, I would ask you this morning, if your desires match up with God's desire, we're talking about the cause, the call of prayer that drives us to this cause. Do your desires for the lost match God's desires for the lost? Or do you find yourself waiting on them to just get theirs? Does the day of judgment for the lost, does the thought of eternal hell for the unbeliever bring you some sort of joy? Or glee that they're finally going to get theirs? Or does it drive you to your knees in prayer for the lost? It says very clearly here, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Is that your desire? Do you rejoice when the prodigal returns? Are you the older brother sulking in the corner because you don't think that person deserved God's grace? That person doesn't deserve God's mercy. It's easy enough to say, oh, I pray for the lost, pray for the unbelievers, but put a face on it. Put some names on it. The good, the bad, the ugly, everybody in between. And see if that is still your desire. Now we must talk for just a moment in verse 4 about what we mean by God's desire. And this leads us to a question of God's will. 
Well, Pastor Matt, I thought God is sovereign. God is almighty. God cannot fail. And if it's his will that all should be saved and all are not saved, hasn't God failed somehow? Is there some deficiency in God's will and God's might and God's power? What what does it mean that God wills? He desires for all to be saved when clearly not everybody is saved or will be saved. Well, there's a lot of theological stuff we could go into. Let me just boil it down to two words under the will of God. Let's talk about what is God's moral will and what is God's providential will. God's moral will, as you can tell, is that which aligns with God's character and God's nature. When God says, do not steal, that is a revelation of God's moral will. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do pray, as we see today. That is God's moral will. God's providential will, on the other hand, is what God decrees will come to pass. I don't know if that cleared it up for you or not, but we say God desires all people to be saved. We see a revelation of God's moral will. What does he desire for the world? Holiness, righteousness, and salvation. So does this indicate that God wants everybody to be saved, but just can't do it? He really wants to do it, but he can't? Does it mean that God has done all he can do, and now he simply leaves it up to us to do the rest? No. Very simply, God does not want any single person to turn away and be lost. But our sin is our decision. No one is driven to sin by God. No one is driven into unbelief by God. But... He can leave them there. Romans chapter 1 is full of this language, isn't it? God handed them over to their lust. God gave them over to their sin. God said, this is what I want for you. You don't seem to want the same thing. You're chasing after this. So fine, have what you want. And God judicially gives them over. We wander. We resist. We rebel, we reject, and God gives us what we want. Even, listen, even if it's not his moral will. What God desires is that all sinners, without exception, race, gender, age, sinfulness, what God desires is that all sinners would repent. What God decrees is that many will suffer the just judgment for their own sin even as some are saved. Now, if you need two really good biblical examples, I mean, we could go to the very beginning of creation and see Adam and Eve. What was God's moral will? Don't eat the fruit. It's simple, right? So it was God crossing his fingers behind his back and somehow hoping they would eat the fruit because that's what happened, that seemed to be God's will. No, it was not God's will that they eat the fruit. It was not God's will that they fall into sin. Moral will. But in his providence, and according to his divine eternal plan of redemption, 
He permitted and decreed that that should happen according to the free will of Adam and Eve in the garden. The moral will said, do not eat the fruit. His providential will said, this is what is going to happen for my purposes of redemption in the world. Think about the crucifixion of Jesus. The greatest sin to ever be perpetrated on the face of the earth. Would you agree? Peter said, you crucified him by the hands of wicked and lawless men. It was a sin. It was wicked. It was lawless. Was it God's will in that sense that Jesus be betrayed? That people not believe in Jesus? That people accuse Jesus and crucify Jesus? Of course it wasn't according to his moral will that those things happen. That was a sin. But according to his providential will, he said, this is the way it's going to be for the purposes of redemption in the world. Satan meant it for evil. God meant it for good. This is the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. That we can say without fingers crossed and no theological backflips that God desires all people to be saved according to his moral will. And also say that he decrees that only some will be saved according to his providential will through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Paul begins to make sure we don't misunderstand this. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So lest we begin to think Paul is teaching what's called universalism, that everybody will be saved, that no one will go to hell. After all, it said God desires all people to be saved, and if he gets what he wants, then everybody will be saved. Paul says, no, 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 no. There's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, and only those who come to him will be saved. Let's say it this way. God can and God will save anyone. But he will only save through one. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came as the God-man to suffer on behalf of men and to give righteousness on behalf of God. Paul says it this way in verse 6. He came to give himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. A testimony. Testimony to what? What what did Jesus giving of himself testify to? Well, it testified to the love of God for sinners. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that You know, someone might maybe die for a righteous person, someone who they think is righteous. Romans 5 verse 8, though, says, But God demonstrates, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the testimony that Jesus gives on the cross. God loves sinners and God will save sinners so much that he sends his son to be what Paul calls a ransom a price that must be paid to receive something in this case the very blood and life 
of the Son of God. God's love is displayed and demonstrated and witnessed to in the fact that the pure, righteous, holy Son of God gives himself for his enemies. And that God is testifying as he empties out all that he has in his Son for you and for me. I love sinners. I will save the lost. That is the testimony that Jesus gives you today. Through his death on the cross. It's the same message that Paul's been preaching from the very beginning. Chapter 1 verse 15. That Christ Jesus came into the world. To save sinners. So you've seen the cause. The salvation of all people. It's driven by the call to pray. And now we see number three. The commission in verse 7. For this. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The call to prayer drives us to the cause to see the lost saved. But there's no feet and there's no hands to it unless we also see this commission. The commission that arrested Paul. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, by the command of God. That same commission and that same command holds him now. And Paul says, it is for this. This is what I'm here for. What, Paul? The gospel. This is what we pray for, that the gospel would increase. This is what we go for, that the gospel might increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Starting in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, this is of first importance. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's what drove him. It's what he wants to drive Timothy. It's what should drive us. The one message of the one Savior. Paul says, this is the reason for this I was called to be a preacher and an apostle. Now, we may not be apostles with a capital A, as Paul calls himself here. But that word apostolos is just a combination of two words that means a sent one. One who is sent. And so while we may not be capital A apostles as the apostles were, We are nevertheless sent ones with the commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. This is the commission to do what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How can they hear unless someone preaches, and how are they to be preaching if they are not sent? Are you not this morning, believers, the sent ones of God? with the commission of God, with the spirit of God, with the gospel of God? Or does something else drive you today? 
It's easy to come to church on a Sunday morning and say, oh, this is what I'm all about. I love Sunday school. I love church. I love the Bible. I love the preaching. I love the singing. I love seeing the kids' testimonies. I love hearing the music. I love all this stuff. This is who I am. But is it what drives you? I'm not a youth pastor anymore. I'll leave it to Zane to harp on these things as the youth pastor. But when I was a youth pastor, one of my biggest pet peeves was kids and their busyness and their endless sports. And then when they were done playing sports at school all weekend, for months at a time, they were gone playing sports somewhere else. Nothing wrong with sports. Zane will tell you, I love some sports. I love the sports. Everybody laughs, yeah. Not about that. It could be anything in your life this morning, church. Anything in your life, families, that detracts and distracts from this being what drives you and your family. What drives you? Is it this commission or is it something else? This morning, we could do a show of hands, but I know we would have everybody raising their hands for for something. How many of you in the room today know prodigal children, unbelieving co-workers, How many of you have a loved one that's far from Jesus, lost or otherwise, you're unsure about them? How many of you today would say, I'm in political confusion and I don't know what to make of these leaders and these authorities? How many of you would find yourself politically frustrated today? Whatever your case is here today, the call is the same, to pray for all people because no one is outside of God's saving grace. And God will save the vilest offender who truly believes. And so what can you do this morning? Remember what I said to start with, you can pray. You can pray for God to save that lost loved one, that lost coworker. You can pray for that enemy. You can pray for that person that's just driving you nuts right now. And then don't just pray. Go and take the message of the good news to them. For this I was appointed, a sent one on behalf of God. What can we pray this morning, church? We can pray as a church that God would give us Dumas. Can we pray for that? God, give us Dumas for the gospel, for Jesus. Can you pray this morning? God, give me my child. I don't know where they are. I don't know what they're doing. They're far from you. Can we pray this morning? God, give me my child. Can we pray? God, give me my spouse. I don't know where they are this morning. I don't know what they're doing this morning. I don't know where their heart is with you, God. Can you give me my spouse? Give me my parent, an aunt, an uncle, a co-worker that's heavy on your heart, a classmate, students and kids, a friend. 
God, give me that person. Save them. Open their eyes. You know the commission this morning. I wonder if you understand the cause and if it will drive you to this call to prayer. God's desire this morning is that all may be saved. And the question for you this morning is what are you called to do about it? Would you go ahead and stand with me and musicians come. We're going to sing a simple song, People Need the Lord. Before we even begin to sing, I I told you I wasn't going to do a show of hands and I'm not. (laughs) We're just going to pray together as a church for the needs that are on your heart, for that lost child, that lost parent, that lost loved one, friend, coworker, our country, our community, your neighborhood, your school. So before we even begin to sing, there's no emotional ploy to respond to something. If you have a lost person on your mind, whoever that may be, would you come and bring them before the Lord? We used to gather here and kneel for the pastoral prayer, and because I talk a little too much at pastoral prayer time, I kind of did away with that. But I, I, I wonder this morning if there's a lost person on your heart or in your mind that you will bring before the Lord today. Before we even begin to sing, you have a lost child, lost parent, lost loved one, lost coworker, lost friend. Would you come and begin to pray for them now? Nothing magical about these steps. This isn't an altar, as many would call it. They're just some steps here at the front of the church. I want it to be a landmark for you, a place where you say, this is where I began to pray for that lost child, that lost loved one, that lost family member. Will you begin to come now and pray for those in your life, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, those who are heavy on your heart this morning? And there's a simple prayer, simple prayer that you're asking the Lord today. Simple prayer. God, save them. Call out their name to the Lord. God, save them and when we get up from our praying today you go to them call them text them email them facebook message them whatever and share this good news of the gospel of jesus christ and you don't have to come here and respond in this way if you need to just sit where you are if you need to kneel where you are if you want someone to pray for you just go find someone to pray for you pray for that loved one as we lift these names up to the lord today as we sing Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.